for me, I remember the first time someone went down on me and it was unlike anything I'd ever experienced in my life. And I got like tingles in my face and I can remember getting really embarrassed and really horrified that that was happening. So this is Dr. Fern Riddell. I'm so excited to have a doctor on the podcast. We're official now. It's happening. Fern is amazing. We are talking about her new book, Sex, Lessons from History. And I'm just going to read from the blurb directly because it's brilliant. A powerful, inclusive and entertaining new cultural history of sex from one of the UK's most prominent historians. In Sex, Lessons from History, Fern Riddell takes us on an illuminating journey to uncover the sexual lives of our ancestors. From flirtation to orgasm and everything in between, she shows us that they were just as preoccupied as we are with sexual identity, masturbation, foreplay, sex and deviance, facing it with the same confusion, joy and accidental hilarity that we do today. Obvious why I've got her on the podcast. I mean, come on. In the blurb it also says, so what is sex for? Uh, (laughs) Read the book, find out, I guess. But also, thank you for making something that explores that question. Fern is a cultural historian specialising in sex, suffrage and culture in the Victorian and Edwardian eras. She appears regularly on TV and radio and hosts a well-known history podcast, hashtag not what you thought you knew, where she explores how history has made us who we are today. She also was a consultant for the BAFTA award-winning BBC drama Ripper Street, which I mentioned because... One of my very good friends from uni is obsessed with that show and I just wanted her to know that I've met somebody who was involved in the production process. Hashtag historical consultant brag. (laughs) Quick note to say that this was recorded almost exactly a year ago. In that time, the book has come out in paperback and also major changes have occurred around the rights of women to access abortion in America with Roe v. Wade being overturned. That's not something that we discuss here because obviously we couldn't see the future. But if you wonder why we don't mention it when we do discuss abortion rights, that is why. It's because it was a year ago. Okay, that's all I'm going to say. Our Patreon, if you've been listening to us for a long time or just a tiny little one but love us already, is www.patreon.com forward slash Helen Duff. I am whacking a big chunky download of where I'm at with the baby, comedy, my life, etc. At the end of this episode, you absolutely have the option to not listen to that, but just to give you a little taste of the Patreon vibe in case you were interested. Uh, So stick around for that after the episode. If not, please enjoy Dr. Fern Riddell because she is a delight from start to finish and I can't wait to share her with you. I was going to ask you about who recorded your... Because I haven't heard it yet. Obviously, your audiobook hasn't come out yet. But did you record it yourself? How was that as an experience? It was It was a really weird experience because obviously I know, I know I've written a book about sex. I know that. I wrote it. It makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I know what's in it. But actually being the voice of saying those words out loud was a very different experience because there's a lot of kind of first-hand accounts in the book. There's a lot of... Um, colourful language, shall we, shall we yeah. say? How was lot- it reading the James Joyce letter? That would I be didn't. 
that's did the you thing not read that bit? so i've read everything apart from the james joyce letter which i just we got about two sentences in and i was sitting with my producer and i was like i can't no i can't do it it's so I'm not, intense. I'm not a British person. It is. It's really intense. For anybody who hasn't read it or has no idea what we're talking about, this is a letter from James Joyce to his wife, Nora. They've spent some time apart. They've been sending each other letters. He, at the beginning, thanks her for a letter she sent him, uh, to which he's tugged himself off twice. He, that's the opening of the letter. <laughs> <laughs> which I guess is a way of kind of... I wonder if that's a way of measuring how sexy the letter is, the amount of times he tugs himself off from the letter. I think it's and, a good start. Yeah, great. It's a cracking opening. It really establishes <laughs> the style. And then the rest of the letter is just about her farts. I mean, it's predominantly about her farts. And he's in just in praise, in glory of her. And um, it's so funny because you're right, there are some people who, funnily enough, I think, it, they talk about anal, they talk about cunnilingus, they talk about yeah, going down on each other, waking each other up whilst going down on each other. Um, but I think for some people, the thing that would be the biggest shock or turn off or like taboo would be the farts, which mm -hmm. isn't technically a sexual thing. It's, no. it's just that some people I know... I'm absolutely beyond this because A, I'm pregnant. B, it's like a year after a pandemic. C, I've lived with yeah. my boyfriend for a while now. And I cannot imagine, but I know that some people don't, not talking about anything to do with your arsehole, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> I can't I think... imagine having that as a big taboo because, God, God, it would be so impossible. But um, some people really, it's a real no-no topic, isn't it? It is. I think it's really fascinating when you see people or when you're talking to people or people are talking kind of, in the media about sex and one of my biggest pet peeves is this real sanitization that we've got of our sexual culture like whether it's your genitals have to be completely bare and kind of like perfect whether you're a man or a woman or whether it's this idea that sex isn't smelly and you know and earthy and animalistic and it should be something that's very kind of clean and sanitized and there's no and plastic and kind of farts don't come into it well Farts, of course, your body makes weird noises when you have sex. You can't, it doesn't matter what you're doing. It's just part of it. And we, I think today we've really lost that ability to celebrate, indulge and not be weirded out by that. It really saddens me where our kind of public sexual culture is at the moment, which is mm. not about celebrating those things, not about being the James Joyce's and the Nora's and just indulging and joyfully going for sex in all of its humanity and 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 yeah animalisticness i feel like brene brown because you know <laughs> have you ever listened to her podcast she always she interviews lots of authors and she always says like oh how am i gonna i've highlighted every single page there are post-it notes on every i've written i've scribbled everywhere but i feel like that is true i have done that <laughs> I've written all over it, which I know is sort of blasphemous for some people. No, it's not blasphemous at all. No, it's not blasphemous at all. Please. I've got so Anyone many. Anyone tells you you're not, you shouldn't, you must write in books. <laughs> write in books, make them your own. I bloody love it when people write in my book. But yeah, this is covered in my annotations. Let's call them annotations Good. to make them sound classy and intellectual. Um, <laughs> but it's wonderful. And I did wonder what it was, because you've written books before, mm. what it was that made you think, this is the one I have to write now. That's actually a really tough question. And you'd think, um, knowing that I had my book coming out and I would be on the Prairie Trail, I would have an answer to it by now, but I don't. I, I, I think 
the first book that I did for Hodder before this one was called Death in 10 Minutes. And it was the um, biography of a suffragette bomber who was also a birth control activist, Kitty Marion. And um, I was working on her biography in an archive. And it was a story I really wanted to tell because her life is just amazing. You know, we don't we don't talk about suffragettes and their bombing campaign. We don't mm. talk about the fact that they blew up trains and they blew up churches and MPs' houses. Like that's a whole bit of our history that isn't talked about. And I loved that. But I also really loved the fact that Kitty did all that. And then she went off to America and became a birth control activist and then came back here to the UK. Because that kind of that journey of a woman who was talking about sex and violently militant to get us our rights as as women I found absolutely fascinating and I wanted to know more of and I'd I kind of worked in sex history for quite a long time since I started my PhD many many years ago when I was when I was a student and I had lots of bits of history that had really changed my mind like I'd found random Victorian adverts for dildos and I'd found kind of amazing things that had made me realise the attitudes that I'd grown up with and I'd certainly had as a historian about the Victorians and sex were complete bullshit. Like they, they were not an accurate representation. They were not accurate history. And, and so I had had in my mind for a long time that I wanted to examine things more and more. And after Kitty, I wanted to do a proper book that looked at the history of sex because I knew she wasn't unique in that, in that kind of realm of women talking about sex and fighting for us to have access and control over our bodies, whether that's mm. birth control or just great sex. And I, I, I knew I wanted to do something like that. And then in the last few years, I had this opportunity, I had an opportunity to do another book with Hodder. And I want, knew I wanted to do it a little bit on sex, but the debates that we've had in feminism surrounding who has the right to be called a woman and how our LGBTQA history has really been misrepresented in public and, and just in general and how many people fe feel disconnected from that, it suddenly felt like I had a real opportunity to bring all of those things together and be able to say everything I wanted to as a historian from what I've looked at and found and researched and know and how that alters my interaction with the world we're in today and how it's changed my mind about things so it it, it kind of I didn't sit down going okay I'm now going to write my magnus opus on sex and it's going to be brilliant and amazing it was it came very much from I think personal experiences of sex as a teenager and a young adult growing up and friends experiences of sex and then knowing how much history was different, it just felt like something I needed to do more than anything. Because I think, I think a lot of the problems we have today and I think a lot of things we experience as women, there's so much that we kind of believe we're supposed to ex accept because it's always happened. You know, mm. sort of quote unquote, always That's happened. just the way it is, yeah. Yeah, turns out that's a fucking lie. <laughs> you know, that's complete <laughs> bollocks. And the fact that we, you know, so much happens to us as women, um, however you um, are, you know, are born a woman or identify as women, so much happens to us in our sexual lives that we have been taught to either not challenge or brush aside as normal, that I really, I really hope this helps us challenge that. I also realised I wanted to ask you to go back a bit. And in terms of mm. what you were saying around your experiences of sex and people you knew's experiences of sex when you were younger and then what you were reading as a historian, 
I'm really interested in A, what that disparity might have been and B, how you, I think this is something a lot of people want to know, how you end up specialising in sex history. Because you said, oh, I was doing a PhD in sex history and it's, it makes it sound as if, oh, that's quite a normal track but anybody who's ever applied to a university knows that's not something that necessarily comes up when you're like doing a UCAS form or talking to your careers advisor yeah so yeah could you just take us back to that bit well I so I call myself a sex historian now and sex history I think for many of us there are a number of us now who say who will use the term sex historian to describe what we do um, we all come from different fields. We all come from different backgrounds. We all did different things as our PhDs to get where we are. So I think sex history really is very much an emerging, a field that has been emerging in the last 10 years. There's a fantastic kind of um, department set up at Exeter that specifically focuses on looking at sexual attitudes through history That's and does some amazing work. But other than that, there's kind of lots of us around the country who have realised that this is where we are and this is what we do. So you don't, unfortunately, at the moment, really get the chance at any university to go in and go, I want to join the sex historians department and be a sex historian. But I started doing a PhD on cultural history and I realised very early on that what I wanted to do, because I, I specialise Really, my background is in the music hall, which is um, uh, Victorian entertainment, which basically was the internet of its day. It's kind of phenomenal. And I was looking at how women navigated the music halls and as performers and as managers and everything else. And, and kind of a lot of people's attitudes to that is that women in the Victorian period didn't have any sexual um, agency, didn't have any sexual desire and all of this. And every woman I found was the complete contrary of that. Annie Besant being one of them, you know, this amazing 80, um, uh, late uh, 19th century birth control campaigner who went to court to fight for the right to be able to publish her birth control guide for everyone and won. You know, she, her life story is phenomenal and she is an absolutely amazing, amazing woman. It's something that kind of emerges, I think. A lot of the sex historians I know, we all have sort of ended up here because our research challenged our own preconceptions of what sex in our period whether that's medieval or victorian or, or whatever was like and we realized no one had actually gone back and actually asked those questions of what did these people think how did these people react and if they had often their answers from that period had been sanitized by the historian of the 1980s or the early 1900s into just what they wanted them to say so there's a lot of kind of unpicking that's happening in sex history at the moment of, mm. of how people have written about things wrong or have sanitised or, you know, we've got so many historical figures where um, no one would realise that they were gay because the, the historians of the 20th century just never acknowledged it or wouldn't talk about it or went to great lengths to hide it. So there's a big move in sex history at the moment, a kind of a, in a, a kind of the global universe of sex history across the world of people reanalyzing and identifying people who are gay ancestors who are our gay heritage who are our elders in that way um to make sure that lgbtqa people know that their history is as long and as diverse as the history they were force fed at school that was only heterosexual you know and that that's something i think is incredibly important for us to do because when you look at history kind of red in tooth and claw, you know, in all of its 
reality rather than anything that's been sanitized, LGBTQA people are everywhere. Of course they are, because they're everywhere today. So of course they're everywhere in the past. You know, mm -hmm. they're not a new invention. It's not modern or anything like that. And I think making sure that people, that every person knows that their history is relevant and preserved and acknowledged um, today. Ooh, I feel nice. I feel very, very good indeed. Since I feel lovely, would you like to come and play with me? Okay. There's a brilliant bit in the book in terms of uh, 1980s historians and, and going back and potentially correcting or reviewing their biases and reviewing what they were writing about as a result, where you talk about the miscomprehension uh, that came out of one historian's research into, let me make sure I'm getting this right, Victorian physicians who were treating women with hysteria and were giving them pelvic massage and therefore orgasms. And she you, claims. She, she claims. claims. And, and She's wrong. <laughs> gone into refuting that. Why, I was, when I was reading that, I thought, oh, that's so, I really love watching those kinds of things unfold, not just the history, but also the context around the making of the history and the reminding us that actually all of these things are stories and all of these stories are written by someone. And so they're always inflected by someone's perspective. Why do you think we were so, as a society, certainly the press very much loved it, willing uh, enthusiastic to accept that as an image of the Victorians, that that's what was going on, that women had to be treated for hysteria and this is the way that it was done. And uh, I think what you focus on, interestingly, is that in order for this story to work, for it to be true, the women who are being treated couldn't have known what an orgasm was beforehand. And, and the society mm -hmm. as a whole must have been really naive about what women's pleasure looked like because the physicians who were doing it, it was mm -hmm. written, didn't know that they were giving their clients orgasms or their patients orgasms. Yeah. They just were doing this thing that seemed to relieve the symptoms of their hysteria. Yeah. Well, let's 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 start up with the first thing of, of of course everything that's just been said and that idea of that physicians were doing this and they didn't know all them were that Rachel put out that's completely false and completely incorrect because they all knew that um, what an orgasm was they all knew uh, what a pelvic massage on anyone would would do and we know this because the Victorians' understanding of female pleasure and in fact every century's understanding of female pleasure before the 20th century was absolutely fixated on the female orgasm because it was the only way that you got pregnant mm. the the belief from the ancient world all the way through every single century to the 20th century was that the only way a woman could get pregnant was if she had an orgasm, especially at the same time as a man. So mutual orgasms were kind of all the range. That's how you got pregnant. That's what happened. Is this what um, you talk about as the shared seed? Yeah, this theory. is the shared seed theory. Mm. And it comes kind of from Galen uh, in the ancient world. And then it's just carried on. It's absolutely the, the main belief, the only way you get pregnant. What's fascinating is actually um, Channel 4, about 10 or 15 years ago, put a woman in an MRI machine at the point of orgasm to see what happens. And at the point you orgasm, your cervix actually scoops down. It makes a scooping motion. Mm. So if there's any semen in your vaginal canal, it of course does actually aid conception. So that's one of those things that for me, when I found this out, um, when I was told this kind of nearly a decade ago, absolutely blew my mind that the ancient world knew the female orgasm helped conception before they had MRI machines and were able to stick people in them to see it. Mm. Like that's, that is, that just blows my mind that it's kind of this received physical medical 
You just made an incredibly validating action with your hand. You did this sort of, when you're talking about the scooping in, Mm. you did a kind of, uh, when I've had to describe what an orgasm feels like for me in the past, I've talked about, you know, that grabber machine in our arcade that's sort of roaming around and can't get a grip and then suddenly gains a purchase. You just imitated that exactly. So I feel as if in some ways I've known about the ancient heritage all my life. (laughs) But no, but you see, we laugh about it because we have this kind of modern day belief today that we can only know things through what science tells us. Mm. And we forget that actually our bodies are built with an innate understanding of things that just comes out because that's how it works. And as a society and as people, we are actually very good about listening to our bodies and understanding what they need. And of course, in the ancient world, that was far more focus and far more acceptance on that because we didn't have this fast medicalization of everything. It wasn't, it hadn't been removed from us by pharmaceutical industries, by kind of big media medical bodies to say that, no, this is our knowledge. We're right, you're wrong. And and I mean, I have a, just, just before I get into that rant, um, absolute faith in the NHS and in medicine and in science is all great. It's a really good thing. We need the drug, you know, all of that. But <laughs> at the same time, we have also lost a connection to understanding our own bodies and trusting in our own bodies, I, th- I feel, um, mm. in the last kind of hundred years. And, and so what, what was kind of really fascinating to me was, was this, the fact that the ancient world had this knowledge that we've really lost, this idea that the female orgasm was really important to, um, to sexual pleasure. Because in the 20th century, that kind of, that does get removed. And I know when I was growing up, um, the female orgasm, if you think of Sex and the City, was kind of treated as this thing of what this new thing of wonder, like oh my god, it's it never been done, it's never happened before, and and now we know what it is, and people should do it, and and maybe it's not happening, and it's really complicated, and it's really hard to do. But you know, if you if you picked up anyone from any century before the twentieth century and said to them, did you know the female orgasm is really difficult, and it's a really rare thing. They would all look at you as if you had five heads because their response would have been, you do know it's the only way a woman gets pregnant, right? And we've all, we all kind of talk about it. We all discuss it. We all have ways of doing it. We talk about how easy it is to do. We talk about how important it is to do. We talk about how it's the most natural thing in the world. And you, you after nearly 2000 years of us believing this, you've decided it's hard. <laughs> you know, that they would, they would just kind of, they would think our attitude to it is really bizarre. So in terms of the manipulation of that idea, because you also Mm. go into that as well, because Mm. obviously we know that, in fact, you don't have to orgasm in order to become pregnant. And you discuss the flip side of that argument, which is obviously people who suggest that women who become pregnant as a result of rape Mm. must have been taking pleasure from the rape because the only way you can get pregnant is uh, from having an orgasm. So who hark back to that kind of ancient idea and warp it for very right-wing anti-abortion well it's it's a real it is a real shame and I think this is one of the things with with sex history is when you're researching it and when you're writing about it you have to understand nothing is perfect and you can't you can't make the past better than it was Mm. so on the one hand I can tell you about all these amazing sources that I have that talk about how important the female orgasm is from the 12th century Hildegard of Bingen nun writing about how important and how beautiful this is and this I mean she describes it in this amazing way of when you're having sex and you're in that heated moment the moment for your orgasm you feel a heat in your brain 
and that heat at that moment of orgasm, it comes down into your body and that makes you kind of, um, that's what makes you calm and, and all of this. And I, and I absolutely love that because Hildegard, you know, is none in the 12th century. Who knew? <laughs> um, and that, you know, I've got loads and loads of different kind of first-hand accounts of what orgasms feel like from across the centuries and people talking about it. And it's really beautiful. It's really amazing. But on the flip side of that is the importance and the power that they put on the female orgasm meant that if a woman got pregnant after after she had been raped, which as we know in our modern uh, in our modern society is completely normal and 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 is nothing to do with whether or not the orgasm that the rape had then been consensual. We see that really from kind of Anglo-Saxon times. It, it sort of fades around, I'd say, around the 18th century, so 1700s. But for a very long time, there is this dominant attitude that if a woman says she has been raped and there's a child and she takes that child to court. So we've got a number of cases in kind of the medieval period where women go to the assizes to sort of say, this man raped me and I want payment. You know, I want him punished. I want, you know, I need my, you know, I need to look after my child where the magistrate will turn around and say, well, you've got a child, so you weren't raped. And that, I, I think those are the horrific kind of the moments where you look back on sex history and, and think that's absolutely fucking awful. You know, I can't imagine what that must have felt like. The scary thing is we regard those attitudes, you know, I can say to you, those attitudes started to fade in kind of the 1700s, but they also stayed really current in some corners of our society. So even in 2012, Todd Aitken, who's a Republican senator, stood up. Uh, I think a discussion about rape laws, uh, it was on abortion laws and stood up and said very clearly that the reason why it didn't matter, rape victims shouldn't be considered about for abortion laws was because, because in his understanding, the female body had a way of shutting that down. Mm. So he believed that if a woman was being raped, the female body would stop her from getting pregnant. So therefore, rape victims didn't need to go for abortion laws because if they got pregnant afterwards, then it wasn't a rape. And it's it's moments like that where it sort of divide, defies belief that in the 21st century, someone would say that. And when we can trace its heritage back to the medieval period, and, and it is still part of our culture. I really like the way you navigated a lot of the ambiguous topics in the book or areas of ambiguity. And you talk about how in the past, potentially, in history, there's been a much greater focus on a shared experience of sex and a shared experience of pleasure and how uh, that maybe underlined this idea of the shared seed and, and mutual orgasm in a way that now we're slightly detached from because there's a mm. much more individualistic approach to sex and a kind of idea of what can I get from the situation, how can I perfect my experience, how can I improve or work on my body and my kind of yeah my sexuality as a personal project is that um is that something you see or is that is that my did I misinterpret no that's 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 I so I I personally feel and um so first off I uh I think uh, porn is fantastic I think it has its a place in our society completely I think it can be very helpful and revolutionary for some people and I absolutely believe in sex workers rights but I do feel as a society, we are moving from an erotic sexual culture that is earthy and human and believes in shared sexual pleasure to more of a pornographic one. And what I mean by that is 
it's a removal of sexual pleasure from something you are experiencing with someone else to something you are experiencing alone that is very plastic and very sanitized and is about your pleasure and no and not your partner's and when you look at pleasure when you look at kind of marriage guides or sex guides at any point you know from the 1600s 1700s 1800s to the 19 early 1900s the thing that every single one of them says is that shared pleasure is the most important thing. And that kind of blew my mind when I was researching, um, when I was learning about this as a kind of a younger historian, because I had totally gone into that thinking, all of these books are going to say, male pleasure is the most important thing. And women should just, you know, lie back and think of England. But of course, that's all bollocks as well. Because every single, every single guide states, female pleasure is A, the most important thing, because women have to be able to have an orgasm to get pregnant. And of course, that's what everyone should be wanting and should be having fun with. And then at the same time, that sex is about a very spiritual erotic union one book um said one of my favorite things is said that it's um it should be seen as the union of a soul within a soul and i just thought that was kind of the most beautiful and moving way of of talking about sex and and the sexual encounter and that's not to say that you know you can't have fun from a quickie or a one-night stand or you can't have an, a, a really deep or erotic experience from a quickie or a one-night stand but really for our ancestors and for our kind of our great grandparents, their erotic sexual culture was far more interested in sex as something that was being about this deeply erotic sexual connection with another human being. And I don't think, our, at least the kind of the popular culture I grew up with and the culture that I see today people experiencing I really don't think that has carried on I don't think that's carried through I think people are very lucky when they find someone that they have a really deep powerful sexual connection with but I think our public acknowledgement of how important that is has faded and and it has kind of become far more about what your personal pleasure is rather than that pleasure being a shared thing that you and your partner both work towards. What are you doing? Can you... I'm still on with British cats. Do you find that there is a stigma around what you do or at least a kind of stickiness around explaining what you do <laughs> and why you do it? For want of a better word. This is a great... It's a, stickiness is a great choice of words. Well, so I certainly... I was really lucky, I think, when I was growing up because I grew up in a very healthy atmosphere towards sex mm. um uh my uh in, in certainly in my kind of in my family group there was no shame involved with talking about sex it was something that was kind of said you know let's if you have questions ask questions I may not be able to answer all of them but I'll certainly try and find either the you know find a place to tell you about or tell you what I think or all this but you should experiment and you should find out what you like and I was given I was very lucky I think to get 
very, very healthy messages and attitudes to sex when I was growing up from kind of from my immediate family. And then I found when I went to university that that was really rare. <laughs> and I, so I, you know, I kind of found that a lot of girls, especially at uni and boys as well, had had very different messages were intensely fucked up over their attitudes to sex, intensely kind of fucked up to sexual relationships, you know. Um, and it was a real su- kind of surprise and, sh- and shock to me because I had I had been so lucky kind of growing up in a very um, rural atmosphere and then going to a very small secondary school. I, did, I didn't really realise that what I had had growing up was quite so unique. So that that as a kind of cultural shift certainly certainly changed my attitudes to kind of how people see things. When I went to university and after I kind of had done my being a student, I decided to pursue being a historian professionally. So I was doing my PhD. I wasn't a sex historian at that point. I was working on music halls and a lot of sex was in it. But I wrote my first book, which was called The Victorian Guide to Sex, which is kind of done as every chapter, a different character takes you through Victorian attitudes to sex. And, you know, I didn't really think anything about the fact I was writing it and I certainly didn't expect to be judged for it but I was and I was at my university and I decided asked if I could do my book launch for this book um kind of because it was really exciting to be a PhD student and have a book coming out that wasn't really the done thing then and I asked if I could hold the book launch in our department just because it was I you know I thought maybe five people would come and I was really proud and I thought you know, this is, you know, it's a great thing for my department as well that they've got a PhD student. And um, I watched every single member of our department get up and walk out that evening. And it was just me and my friends. And they had to walk past us, like the whole, you know, like with the, with the, with the wine and the everything and the, all of this. And they walked out one by one. And I was like, right. And then when, after I'd got my PhD and I was doing the rounds of the kind of the literary parties in London, as you do, is kind of, um, when I think, I think it was just after, just as my first big book, my first big proper book with Hodder was coming out in 2018. And I can remember at a big history party um, for an extremely wonderful magazine that I love very much. Uh, another historian came up to me and she she was like oh yes well I thought about writing about sex but you know it just marks you out isn't it and no one takes you seriously Mm. and I was like oh well it's not been a hampener to my career in any way shape or form Mm -hmm. Uh, about a lot of things including sex Uh, I'm a great historian I know that you know my research is fucking brilliant and my career is doing really, really well. So I don't really seem to have a problem with people taking me seriously. It's so frustrating. I think that uh, potentially belies a fear within that person, who's obviously a female, that mm. they resisted talking about sex because they were worried they would be pigeonholed. And uh, one of the reasons I asked the question about whether you'd experienced any kind of stigma or backlash against writing about sex is actually because you are a woman. And it struck me that the book is so open and curious. I really liked how, I was going to ask you another question, which is how the hell did you edit it down? Because there must have been <laughs> such a plethora of 
different stories that you could have chosen to illustrate different points. But I, uh, I became most aware of the fact that you, your style and your kind of your open, curious way of approaching all of these different topics that intersect with sex. When you wrote about onanism, onanism. and uh, the full title, I haven't written down the full title because it's too The title long. is about 50 million years. <laughs> yeah. The title, I'm going to find it because it's too good to miss it. It's in the, mast- it's in the masturbation section. Here we go. <laughs> so the publication of Onania, Onania, Am I, who knows, Onania or the heinous sin of self-pollution and all its frightful consequences in both sexes considered with spiritual and physical advice to those who have already injured themselves by this abominable practice, which was published in 1712. And you speak about how it's made masturbation, even though in the past masturbation had already been uh, legislated against, where you have, for example, boys in the 10th century. This really struck out to me. Boys in the 10th century, if they were caught wanking, essentially, or touching themselves, masturbating, were punished for up to 10 days penance. If they were doing it in front of others or with others, 30 days. But girls got three bloody years. Three bloody years. (laughs) I really want to come back to that. But uh, with regards to the fact that you're writing this book, in a small, very small way, far from having a PhD and, and writing several books. I'm making this podcast. And it just fascinated me that this, this publication, Onanism, Onania, or the heinous sin of self-pollution and all its frightful consequences considered, is actually doing a very similar thing. Well, yours is far more wide ranging, but very similar thing to this podcast, which is that people write in with their own experiences of wanking is putting this itself out there as almost like the Bible of people's sins. People are writing in to self-flagellate and explain how, how much they regret or feel guilty or their experiences, their general experiences of wanking. How terrible it is to have done it and how awful and the impact it's had on their life. But what's amazing is that it gives you, you know, and I think historians have kind of looked at it in, in that kind of thing of, oh, well, masturbation was, was shameful and terrible. And I was like, yes. However, mm. there are like, so many letters so in many this letters. book. There's so many. And so much variety. There's so much variety in different ways people have wanked and different what people and there's also so many letters from women. So actually what should when we're talking about this book and we're talking about this history, shouldn't what we be saying is onanism, yes, is written from a biased perspective, but what it actually tells us is people fucking love to masturbate. They did and, it all the time. And to read about it. Because yes, the, the book was a popular book, right? So, oh, massively. That's what I'm essentially this whole section <laughs> of me going to the chapter and finding the title has been in justification of my podcast and your book in the sense that I guess I asked the question from a slightly oh, a gendered point of view, asking you how do you experience any stigma? Well, I think actually, just to go back to the stigma, you know, stigma from um, other academics, absolutely. Uh, but also huge support as well from, mm. from many of us working in this field. But in terms of the gendered response to what I do, the sex, the response as a woman writing about sex and as a public woman writing about sex, I've been working as a historian for a very long time. <laughs> she says sort of having passed the 10-year mark for a very long time. <laughs> but I work as, um, I work obviously as, a, as an on-screen expert and um, as a writer, as an author, as someone who does radio and podcasts and all this, but I also work a lot in drama. So I um, was the historical consultant for Ripper Street, which is a big BBC drama. So I worked a lot with scripts and with productions. And I love 
I apps is one of my heartlands is is working in, in drama. What's interesting is for me as, as kind of experiencing it is the sex history part of it is actually quite small because I do mm. all of this other stuff. But the moment people find out you work on sex history, if you're, as I often get, you know, having any backlash online or anything like that, the moment someone figures out that you write on sex, that backlash immediately becomes sexual. Mm-hmm. So um, Sex Lessons had its first review over the weekend. Um, and it was by someone who sl- slated my last book because she doesn't like the fact that I'm pro-trans rights. And she took it upon herself to place a review in the Sunday Times slating sex lessons because, of course, sex lessons is also pro-trans rights because mm-hmm. that's just the history. I can't make that up. That's just how our past was. And she uh, obviously, you know, everyone's in their own little echo chambers. So people who support her, men especially, immediately started making sexual comments and she joined in with this kind of misogynistic language and this kind of sexual slang language as um, as a way to to denigrate my work and what I do and who I am. So I actually find the backlash as a sex historian, it's not that people don't take you seriously, it's that they think that because you work on sex, it's open season to abuse you with sexual language. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's any different. You know, we know people who work in the sex industry. We know people who, are any actress who, who does a nude scene is immediately seen as fair game by certain sectors of our society. And I, I do think that this, it's when we talk about stigma that comes with working on sex, it's not so much stigma as people believe somehow that then because you work on sex, you are you are less deserving of respect. You are working on sex in a way that is you're researching the history of it. You're going deep into deep into the detail. I really want to know how you stop researching because it seems <laughs> to me that you've gone you've ha- you've had such a breadth just looking at the acknowledgments and the footnotes of things that you've you've read and you've used to compile this book like where you draw the line and just go, Fern, this is, we've got enough. It's enough now. Um, It's never enough. It's never enough. (laughs) But you're the person who's being singled out as uh, worthy of attack, or at least it's okay to attack you, as opposed to the people who are inside your book, who you're saying, look at at this person who wrote the ownerism book for example their stance was very puritan they mm. were they were publishing these letters from these people all about these people's experiences of uh, of masturbating but uh from the position of somebody anonymous a man who is saying i'm going to put all of this out there into the public space i'm going to share all of this information so that everyone can gobble it up with their eyes and their mm-hmm. imaginations but i'm taking the stance of somebody who is saying it is wrong what they are doing and they should learn from their experiences of hurting themselves of physically abusing themselves of polluting themselves so that we as a public can all collectively kind of grieve their their pain that they've put themselves through and 
and ourselves be kind of exonerated. And that seems to be the way that you get away with, you can, you can publish about sex, you can talk about sex, as long as you are at the end of the book or intermittently throughout the book or the article that you're writing, reassure the person reading that you don't hold any of these views, you've never yeah. done any of these things, and you think yeah. they are explicitly uh, erroneous and awful. That seems to be like what what's rewarded in certain circles, as opposed to somebody writing a book and doing all the other things that you do, where you're, you're taking a much more open and curious approach and saying all of these experiences are valid. And I think it's really good if we know about them so that yeah. we're not getting on our high horse and saying some things are okay and moral and some things are absolutely disgusting. It's so lovely to hear you say that because that's absolutely how I would want anyone to understand this book is written and, and, and the attitude that it has with it. And you're completely right. There is this kind of, this idea that if you're writing about sex, you should only do it from the most respectable, most high moral kind of um, judgmental position. And we see that kind of through through kind of the centuries of if you're a woman writing about sex, sometimes that's that's the role that people think they have to fall into. I just don't think it's right. And I think we need to get to a point where we're just a bit more grown up about it. Mm. Like people have sex. People celebrate sex. That's okay. That's a good thing. And you know, sex should be as diverse and non-judgmental as long as it's between consenting adults, you know, then as, as people need it to be because no one has sex the same way. You know, however many sexual partners you'll have in your lifetime, every sexual experience with a different partner is different. It's never a repeat. So why do we think that our understanding of sex, whether it's gender or identity or the sexual experience in itself, will ever, ever fix into a one-dimensional box of A to B, and that's it. I find it bizarre, the people who think that's how sexual experiences or se in your lifetime should be, that they should be this kind of defined black and white thing. They shouldn't, you know, it, it's, that's not what pleasure and that's not what joy and that's not what sex is. It just isn't at all. And so I hope, anyone reading this book, whether they want to know more about LGBTQA history or our attitudes to the body or how, you know, how people in the past flirted and what it did and why it mattered or contraception, you know, all, all of these things are in there. And it is about being curious because that's how I approach history. And that's also, I think, how I approach life. That's why the book is so brilliant. It's so, it's because you're informing people. You're opening up our knowledge. It's understandable that people maybe have limited views because that's all we're receiving if you only get yeah. one version. So, for example, learning that Samuel Pepys uh, wanked in church <laughs> over Charles II's mistress and wrote about it and thinking, hmm, I've definitely heard his diary serialised several times on Radio 4. Yeah. Yeah. And never has that been mentioned. <laughs> so I, I really applaud you and I thank you for writing the book thank you so much the last question I always ask people and you can feel free not to answer it if you if you don't want to because I realize this has been a slightly less kind of personal uh interview is I always ask what it feels like for you to orgasm mm. and you can describe it however um abstractly or uh, anatomically oh. as you please I think that's I think that's an amazing question. I'm now going to have to go back and listen to every single one of the podcast because, <laughs> because, because, you know, people, I think people's sexual language and how they describe their sexual experiences are so beautiful and amazing. For me, 
I remember the first time someone went down on me and it was unlike anything I'd ever experienced in my life. And I got like tingles in my face and I can remember getting really embarrassed and really horrified that that was happening because although I'd you know, had a lot of discussions about things like that, I hadn't ever experienced it before. So I think that first time that you experience that pleasure when your body has never been through it is something I think you should be able to remember or be allowed to be. It's more important, I think, than losing your virginity is that first time that you experience that with someone else or with yourself. I would agree so strongly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that is what I think. I think we I think if we needed, you know, if we need a total shift in our in our sexual culture, it's it's to forget celebrating the loss of your virginity and start celebrating your first orgasm. So that was Fern, Dr. Fern Riddell, the first doctor we've had on the podcast. What an honour, what an absolute legend. And I say that, I think more justifiably than when you might use the word legend to describe another person, because like, she works in history and that. Uh, Her book, Sex, Lessons from History, Sex, colon, Lessons from History, just in case you didn't get the implication of my pause there, is out in paperback wherever you get your books. And she recorded the audiobook for it. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in the extra section that we're going to drop in at the end here. We don't always do extra sections, but we are today. Uh, but on Fern, yeah, Sex, Lessons from History is out now wherever you get your books. You can download her reading it. Who wouldn't want that? And I highly recommend it. There was so much we didn't get to talk about in this podcast. We could have gone on for hours. One reason we didn't is because obviously the podcast has to be capped at a certain length of time to keep your attention. And also because obviously Fern and I are not friends. We gave a very good impression of being firm, firm gal pals. But in fact, it was all an illusion. She was doing it for publicity reasons and because she's just genuinely so lovely. But I didn't expect her to take a much more time out of her Scottish Highlands holiday than she already had to talk me through every single chapter of the book that means you get to discover it for yourself a double win fern is as you can probably tell a wonderful person as well as a fantastic author historian presenter etc if you want to find out more about her check out her instagram i'm going to tag that in the show notes along with our patreon you will discover she is a horde not just a, a purveyor of hot takes but also a hot personality as well okay i think that's enough i think we've had enough this podcast has been edited by the fantastic daisy grant check out daisy grant productions if you want her support with your podcast although she's so busy she can barely reply to my texts and i look forward to hearing seeing connecting with you next week we have lindsay bliss a brilliant doula birth doula from new york as well as just a badass mother of six and wonderful all-round woman see you then and in the meantime take care of yourself okay so this is the extra bit now this is the bit that i normally put on patreon and if you're not here for this if you don't want to listen in to my ramblings about me and what's been going on feel free to log out now i realized that Some people are not in a place where they can maybe connect to the Patreon right now. And that is absolutely fine. You are very welcome here, regardless of what's happening for you, regardless of whether you can contribute monetarily. Listening, giving us your attention, 
I am so, so grateful for that. So log out now if you're not interested in more stuff about me that is not directly orgasm or history related. Wonderful. For the rest of us, thank you so much for listening to the season two bonus content pre-series big birth story episode. Lots of you did. And I am very touched by the fact that you were bothered. So I thought I would just give you a quick update about where I'm at right now in terms of being a mum and a comedian and how that is working out. I also just had a huge revelation, which is the main reason I wanted to record this bit. And it's inspired by an audiobook I just finished recording. I'm not going to give you the details because it hasn't been published yet. We always record it before it comes out. But I can say that it's about coercive control. A woman who is being coercively controlled by her best friend from childhood, who she also is deeply in love with and hopes to one day have a romantic relationship with. He strings her along. There's a traumatic incident when they're teenagers. She drops out of uni as a result of it. And he gaslights her around it. Uh, for days, for years, and she doesn't realise until, like, the end of the book. I found this book really hard to record. I've actually recorded a lot of books around this area. I think it's called Domestic Noir. Uh, It's a hangover, or at least it's definitely become a much bigger area of interest since, like, the Gone Girl phenomenon that was. It turns out there's a big audience for books about intelligent women who should know better, who end up in bad relationships with bad people, who don't allow them to realise their full potential. And then at the end of the book, they suddenly see through them and become the fierce, fantastic people they always should have been. And I think it's because they're read by intelligent women who should know better, who are in relationships with bad people, who guess like, do you see what I mean? Like, we are uh, attracted to things that maybe reflect back an experience we've had, or that we think, oh yeah, we just love seeing that arc, that experience of like realising you're better than the person you're giving all of your attention to, or the thing that you're focusing all of your energy on. And when I was reading this, I was like, I can't handle this right now. This person is so silly how can they not see what's happening and then as the book was going on I personally was feeling worse sorry I just had to stop recording to help my boyfriend find his swim goggles Uh, we didn't find them I've put them somewhere I, I continuously hide them from him because I get so annoyed with them being just like out and about it's the one object that doesn't have a place and I haven't found the place yet but I've obviously put them somewhere that I thought was really clever and now neither of us can find them Anyway, it made me realise that I uh, didn't do a disclaimer at the start of this, that I am not myself being coercively controlled by my boyfriend or anyone else outside of my own person. But what I did realise reading this book was... Sorry, that's my stomach. I'm quite hungry. I'm going to... I couldn't... I came in from a run and was like, I've had this revelation. I need to record it. It's probably going to be rambly, jambly because I had a coffee, then a run. Now I'm recording. Never, never doth the trio go well. But I realised that a lot of the behaviours this person, the protagonist was having this toxic relationship with, was doing, was exhibiting, were things I do to myself. Things like things I say to myself, ways in which I make myself feel worthless or tell myself off or like prohibit my behaviour to kind of protect me from shame and embarrassment and vulnerability. So what happened was 
I did ARG Comedy Fest, actually rather good comedy fest, on Saturday, just gone at Shoreditch Town Hall. It's an amazing comedy festival. It's loads of top comics previewing their Edinburgh shows one month before they go up to the festival. I was hosting a stage because I'm not taking a show to Edinburgh this year. So I was doing like 15, five, two minutes in between shows, depending on whether people were running over, under, how much filling we needed in between. As people, audiences shifted between the three different stages and saw different shows. So... As a result, I was doing semi-improvised material, lots of crowd interaction, emceeing. It's different to doing a polished one-hour show that you've been working on for an entire pandemic. That's nearly three years worth of material, thinking, practicing time, and are now taking up to Edinburgh for like a marathon month. And yet, I went immediately into comparison mode where I thought to myself, I am nowhere near as funny, sharp, articulate, verbose, clever, comedic as Ivo Graham, who was the first preview, who did 50 minutes of beautifully written, perfectly practiced, completely off the cuff appearing, but obviously hard worked material. Despite this being a fact, despite this being a reality, my brain was immediately like, you are a piece of shit. You do not belong here. You should leave. You should leave now. You can't leave. You're committed to this. You have to do four more sections in between the next three hour long previews. Oh my God, Leo Reich's coming next. He's so talented. He's so hot right now. What are you going to do in the next five minutes? All of this is going on in my brain as I'm watching Ivo. I've done 15 minutes of lovely crowd work. It's been a really nice time. Very casual, very relaxed. Made the audience feel welcome. Like This is a kind of hodgepodge preview place where you're going to see loads of different voices, loads of different levels of preparedness. And that's okay. This is a nice space to be. We're all going to have a fun time. Then Ivo Graham comes up, starts smashing it, and I immediately go into like red alert emergency shutdown mode when my brain decides the best way to deal with my panic, essentially. I would never have said I've had a panic attack in my life before, but reading this book where the protagonist was having regular panic attacks, I now, on reflection, I'm like, mm, have I though? Because I went into shutdown mode. My brain was just like, you have no material. You have zero jokes. You have nothing you can say. There is nothing you can do. There is there is not a single thing, word, gesture that you could utter that will be worthy of this audience in between Ivo and Leo, which was just a great, great time. It was such a fun, fun thing to experience. And then obviously, as a result, the like three minutes that I did between Ivo and Leo after everybody had shifted rooms, because obviously you go like, Ivo Graham, everybody, everyone applauds, and then the room gets up, moves to another room or stays there, depending on whether they want to. But regardless, we play a bit of music. I don't immediately go into material. But I was so pre-ashamed. I was so pre-ready to bomb that I just did like two minutes and then was like, we're running over, so we better bring Leo on. Without at all like finishing on a laugh, barely getting any, you know, it actually wasn't as bad as I'm sure I felt like it was at the time. But because I'd built myself up for it to be so bad, and then on reflection was like, that was horrific, I never want to go on stage again. It feels like it was a hellish time. And I just spiralled. I had to text a few people to be like, I have to go on again. What the hell can I do? My boyfriend, Kat Bond, another comedian who was a very good friend, and who was hosting the next day, I reached out to them and they were great. They were like, just do some stuff based in the room, like come back to where you are, who's here, what's happening. I did that, we had some lovely stuff on crisps. <laughs> it genuinely was a nice time. I relaxed, it was fine. But 
over that like hour period where I started to panic, I did the link and then I panicked again. I genuinely wanted to run from the building and I ran for myself. I shut down. I left my mind, like I just drained my mind of all personality and self-belief. And that has happened before. And it happens because there's a voice in me that is like the coercive controller in this book who is like, you're a piece of shit, you're nothing, you're going to fail, you're absolutely worthless. And I go into that voice. I am that voice. And reading this book, there's this moment of turnaround where she realises, thank goodness, how she's being manipulated. And she thinks back to this therapist that she had that at the time she didn't think was worth it because she didn't think she was worth therapy. And the therapist says to her, number one, when you're having a panic attack, don't look directly at the panic attack. Don't think about or focus on my eyes are blurring, my breath is short, I can't breathe, I can't think. Because thinking about those factors will exacerbate them. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah. Whenever I am shutting down and panicking in a comedy situation or about comedy, which has been happening a fair bit because I haven't been gigging that much, what with like having a baby and Honestly, my agent stopped being an agent two weeks after the baby was born. So a lot of stuff has just been on the back burner. I've had to pursue everything myself. I've had to completely back myself and fully like be my own cheerleader. And there's not always the energy to do that at the end of the day when you're completely exhausted because obviously I have to make money as well. So I'm working every hour I can when I'm not with the baby. And we're in a bloody recession. So I'm not going to I'm not going to go there because I know nobody needs my panic. But I have been panicking and I have been looking directly at the panic and I have been shutting down. Instead, self-care can look like this is what the therapist said. Not just having a hot chocolate and getting a jacuzzi. These are not her words. These are, this is me paraphrasing. Although both those things do sound delicious to me. Not together. I don't like hot drinks in a hot bath. I think it's too much hot. We went on this sexy weekend very early in our relationship and realised <laughs> as we were boiling like two poached chicken breasts in a bain-marie that we didn't really like jacuzzis and they weren't that sexy after all. Anyway, yeah, self-care doesn't have to look like a hot chocolate in a jacuzzi. Self-care can be you saying to yourself, I don't have to do these things anymore. I don't have to talk to myself like this. I don't have to be really cruel, vicious, nasty, unkind. I don't have to beat myself or berate myself. I don't have to be a king bitch to myself in order to prove that I'm worthy of existence, in order to discipline myself for next time, in order to make sure that I'm good enough if I ever get another opportunity to do comedy. I don't have to do that. In fact, right now, in this moment of panic, when I'm 10 minutes before stage time, doing that is the worst thing I could be doing. Doing that is actively unhelpful, even though in the past I have used that self-talk as a way of like getting through some really difficult things, as a way of keeping going, of, I don't know, feeling like I had some control of the situation because at least I knew how bad I was and therefore nobody else could make me feel as bad as I could. Self-care can be saying to yourself, you are not a bad person, you are not a bad comedian, 
you are a little bit panicked in this moment. You are watching someone who is on their A game. You are watching someone who is extremely talented. There are many, many talented people out there. They are wonderful at comedy. Isn't that a wonderful thing that they exist? What are the things you like about what they are doing that you could maybe channel in yourself? The confidence, the connection, the seeming joy that they're having in being with this group of people and sharing their ideas. So it was a big revelation to realise that the voice that tells me I am shit, that I should stop doing comedy, that I just need to just to walk away from the whole industry, is a bit like a coercive controller who thrives off the power I allow them because they give me a sense of control even if it's like a horrible, horrible sense of control in the depths of despair, in the quagmire of the muddy bog that is my basest self. It was great to have that observation. And in the context of a book where somebody is waking up and being like, no, I don't need that anymore. I'm better off without you. Because it helped me to be like, no, I don't need to go into my coping strategies. So... It was a big time <laughs> recording that in my bedroom at like 8pm at night with my baby asleep next door, my boyfriend out with a mate and me being like, oh my God. And this is the thing you also have to factor in, realising all of these things, that the reason these books maybe resonate with people is not because they are in a toxic relationship with someone else, but because they are potentially intelligent women who should know better who are in toxic relationships with the voices inside their own head. I'm having all of these thoughts at the same time as recording the words of the book. Yes, I am still saying the words of the book whilst having all of these ping, 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 revelations, which is funny to me because if anybody has had a serious mental health issue, obsessive thoughts particularly, you will know that you get really good at functioning at the same time as having the thoughts, saying the things, doing the things that you're supposed to do to get through a normal day whilst having a whole separate track of thoughts in your head. It's a skill. It's a real skill. So I was having all these revelations while reading this book and trying to keep my voice appropriately moderated as opposed to being like when she was saying things like, you're a liar. And I've realised now that for years you haven't been good for me in fact, you've been exactly the opposite. <laughs> Whereas my instinct, the thing I want to do is go like, you're a liar. Okay, I'm going to have to turn down the mic because otherwise it's going to ping horribly. You're a liar. And this hasn't been a good relationship for years. And you're toxic and you're bad for me. And you don't make anything better. In fact, you make everything worse. Obviously, that would have been an inappropriate way to record the book. But it would have been the best way to reflect my feelings at the moment of recording those words. So yeah, that's what I wanted to um, get off my chest. And also that festivals are funny things. If anybody who's listening to this is going to Edinburgh for the first time, I wish you well. And I really hope that you are able to be kind to yourself and to remind yourself that we have had two years of effectively being in our own lanes. Sure, we've been looking at people on social media, but we haven't actually been surrounded by their work or their like physical being. And it can be quite overwhelming to suddenly be like, oh my God, other people do comedy too and oh my god they're really good at it and oh my god does that mean I'm not good at it by comparison that's an easy track of thinking to go down especially when we're so out of practice with being surrounded by actual people so yeah 
feel free to listen back to this and realise you're not alone. There are other people who struggle with it. I'm saying, I'm saying me there. And also, why else did I record this? Oh, because I kind of wanted to remember for my own sake. And I kind of wanted to justify to myself... My stomach is so bad. I'm so sorry. I kind of wanted to justify to myself carrying on with comedy. Because I was going to stop. I was just going to sack the whole thing off. It was too vulnerable. I just felt so ashamed of myself. So messy. So unfinished. Like everyone must be embarrassed on my behalf. And I'm not going to. Because I actually think there needs to be more space for that in comedy, like there's a real trap around and you see it all the time. Once people have polished up their shows, they're almost running away from the fact that they were ever work in progresses in the first place. It's like this golden egg that they've got that they can't afford to crack. So they hold it really tightly. People start getting amazing reviews, start winning awards. And then there's this huge fear because you buy into your own hype. You're like, my show is perfect. I'm very funny. I'm a very funny, perfect person. But at the bottom of that, you're like, I know I'm not. I know in reality, I'm, I'm really not. I shit myself once, <laughs> for example. And so there becomes this like polar opposite where you're, I cannot possibly show the side of myself that wants shit itself. The horror of that although often comedians talk about shitting themselves as a, a, a bit, so it's maybe not the best example. But do you see what I mean? You get into this really tight spot where you're not allowed to admit sometimes you're not perfect. So that's why I'm going to keep doing comedy because I feel like I have to admit I'm not perfect. I'm so rarely polished. I mean, I, I have great gigs. I had such a good gig the week before. I absolutely smashed it. But I'm also super honest during that about the prolapse, about being sometimes a bitch to myself, about having multiple voices in my own head. I don't know how to finish this. I think I've just, I think I've finished. I think I've said everything I wanted to say. I also really want to hear from you if anything I've said chimes with you and it's like, not just comedy, it's like, whatever you do, dentistry. I'd love to hear from you. We have an email address, kayapodcast, C-A-Y-A podcast at gmail.com or message me on Patreon, or message me on Instagram. Message me. I want to hear from you. Okay, great. Lovely. There's a voice in my head that's like, that was not funny enough. But I think there were some laughs. There were enough. And I'm really hungry now, so I have to stop. Thank you so much for continuing to listen, if you have this far. I genuinely love chatting to you. (laughs) Okay. See you next week. (laughs) 